As a kid, I don't know about you, but did you guys ever get tired of your parents telling you the same thing over and over again? Yeah. Maybe, maybe your, your mom or your dad had a saying or a piece of advice that they repeated over and over and you'd respond by maybe rolling your eyes or saying, okay, dad, you know, because you hear it over and over again. I'm blessed to have a dad who loves the Lord, and one of his favorite uh, books in the Bible is the book of Proverbs, and there were several Proverbs that he would quote to me over and over again. Uh, One of them, I still remember it because he quoted it in the KJV, he would quote, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Proverbs 23, 7, over and over again. I heard that probably 10,000 times growing up. And I don't think this one is in the Bible, but he also used to always tell me, never pass up a chance to keep your mouth shut. And then I became a preacher, so I don't know if that one worked out very well. But my dad would quote these sayings to me all the time, and I'll never forget them because I heard them so often. And as a kid, I used to think, yeah, yeah, okay, Dad, I get it. Why do you keep saying this over and over again? Uh, but looking back, I understand why he did this. It's because we're forgetful, aren't we? We're forgetful people. My dad continued saying these things to me because he continued to observe patterns in my life or actions in my life that demonstrated that the truth or the wisdom of what he was saying to me had not sunk down from my head into my heart so that it changed my actions. So he kept telling me the same thing over and over again because clearly I was hearing him, but I wasn't getting him, right? It hadn't transformed the way I lived. As we've been working through the book of Revelation, many of you may have noticed that there's some common themes. One of the common themes in the heart of the book is this theme of judgment. Chapters 6 through 16 of Revelation depict the last days, which, as we've discussed, is the period between Jesus' ascension and his return. And each of uh, it's depicted in a series of visions, and each of these visions describes God's judgment from a different angle. And this morning, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 15 and 16, looking at the next vision in the cycle, the seven bowls of God's wrath. And you might be tempted to find yourself thinking this morning, okay, God, we get it. Can we move on to something else? Like It seems like we're talking about this every week as we walk through the book of Revelation. But the reality is that we may think that we've got this down, but God knows that we need continual reminders. As a pastor friend of mine is fond of saying, Christians leak. Let's be honest, although... We confess to believe that judgment is coming for the wicked and that glorious reward awaits the saints. We still have a tendency to make short-sighted decisions with an eye towards the here and the now rather than on eternity. We're tempted to operate as if there's not a judgment coming for the wicked and if, as if the hope of heaven for God's people isn't real. We can be far too casual with sin as if we will not have to stand before God one day to give an account for what we've done in the body. We can be far too slack in our urgency to tell people the good news about Jesus and warn them of judgment that's coming. We can be far too quick to succumb to anxiety and despair, as if the restoration of all things and the coming bodily resurrection isn't a reality. The point is, 
We can nod our heads and say, okay, God, we get it, all that we want. But God wants these truths to sink down so deeply into our hearts that they transform our lives, that they transform the way that we live. Does that make sense? That's because God wants his people to endure. That's the whole point of the book of Revelation. God keeps reminding us over and over again of the reality of coming judgment on the wicked and the coming reward for the saints so that the saints will not grow weary but that we will endure to the end despite the trials and tribulations that will come our way. So this morning, we're going to look at the vision of the seven bowls of God's wrath in Revelation 15 and 16. Let's turn there. I'm going to start in verse 1 of chapter 15 and we're going to read through verse 11. Of chapter 16. This is what the word of the Lord says. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed." After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. And harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea. And it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing that was in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. And the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish, and they cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Let me pray. 
God, give me wisdom now as I teach your word. Help me. uh, Speak through me in my weakness. And give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have to say to us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So over the past several weeks, we've been walking through these cycles of visions in Revelation, all depicting the last days. Uh, And just as a reminder, Revelation is not laid out like a timeline in chronological order. These visions unfold in cycles, and with each cycle, uh, the, the judgment intensifies. So the judgment of the seals affected a fourth of the earth, and the trumpet judgments affected a third of the earth, but now the bowl judgments affect all of the earth. And the the seal and the trumpet judgments often affected people indirectly, but the bold judgments are poured out directly upon unbelievers, on those who have turned from God in their sin. So the bold judgments are are an intensification of the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments. The main point of the sermon this morning is this. God's righteous judgment upon the wicked will cause His people to rejoice and his enemies to rage. God's righteous judgment upon the wicked will cause his people to rejoice and his enemies to rage. Those are our two points, so let's walk through them one at a time. God's righteous judgment upon the wicked will cause his people to rejoice. There's a clear parallel in the first four verses of chapter 15 between Israel standing beside the Red Sea, rejoicing over their deliverance from Pharaoh, And the saints standing beside this sea of glass rejoicing over their deliverance from the beast. So just as God delivered Israel from Egypt with mighty acts of judgment, He will deliver the saints from the beast. As a reminder, remember that the beast is empowered by the dragon, which is Satan. The beast represents wicked authoritarian empires that demand allegiance. They use their God-given power meant to govern with righteousness on God's behalf. They use that power instead to demand worship for themselves. They demand allegiance to themselves. And they use persecution and false teaching to intimidate and deceive the saints into idolatry. They stand opposed to Jesus' rule and reign. So this is a reminder that behind persecution behind false teaching, behind temptations from the culture is a demonic power waging war upon the church. That's what Revelation keeps reminding us of. And we're called to persevere, to endure, to remain faithful and to resist compromise. And we can do this knowing that in the end, Jesus wins. It's in Him that we have victory. We don't defeat the beast by taking up arms or by setting up a Christian nation, but by continuing to be faithful witnesses to the gospel and refusing to join in with the idolatry of the world. The conquering saints we see here in chapter 15 will sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. The song of Moses was the song that the Israelites sang in Exodus 15 immediately after God delivered them from the oppressive Egyptians with a mighty act of judgment. The people of Israel celebrated God's judgment upon the Egyptians because God's judgment upon the Egyptians meant their deliverance from oppression. 
And in his judgment, God demonstrated his clear power and sovereignty over all nations and over every other so-called God. It was perfectly clear, stunningly clear on that day that Yahweh alone is God. But this is but a microcosm. The Exodus is a microcosm, a foreshadowing of what will happen at the final judgment. The saints will also sing the song of the Lamb, showing that the song of Moses is related to the song of the Lamb. It points forward to uh, the vic- God's victory over Egypt at the Red Sea as a foreshadowing of the Lamb's victory over the beast on the last day. The song of the Lamb is the, is the song from Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 and 10, where we read, They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So Jesus has conquered and is worthy to judge the earth by opening the seals, because by his blood he ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and nation. And and Christians are born again and gathered into the church to be a kingdom of priests. And while the church is under assault by the beast, whether that's through persecution or temptation or deception, Jesus will return to put those assaults to an end. He will decisively and righteously judge the beast and all who worship it. And it will be made stunningly clear on the last day that Jesus Christ is Lord, just as it was stunningly clear that Yahweh is the one true God after God swallowed up the Egyptians at the Red Sea. On that day, we see the song that will be sung in in chapter 15, verse 4. They will sing, we will all sing, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. Philippians 2 tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. God's matchless power and His perfect justice and His mighty salvation will be put on full display as He vindicates His saints. And when all of this finally happens, the saints will celebrate and sing. We will praise God because His righteous acts have been revealed there will be no longer any doubt that God is the one true God that Jesus is the Christ everyone will know there won't be any more doubt all the scoffers will be through with their scoffing on that day and we will praise God for vindicating us and giving us relief from those who have opposed and oppressed the church think about the the parties that took place in the streets across North America and Europe on VE day when, at the conclusion of World War II, when Germany surrendered. The, the surrender of Nazi Germany meant the end of a wicked regime, the end of war, the end of death, the end of tearful goodbyes to loved ones. It meant rest for a nation heavy with the fatigue of year after year of war. And so there was a party, a celebration. Or think of a a crowd of jubilant fans celebrating a massive victory. I'm unfortunate enough to be a Houston Texans fan. But back in the day, it wasn't so bad. I'll never forget attending their first playoff game 
in Houston. J.J. Uh, Watt was a rookie. We were playing the Cincinnati Bengals. It was a close game early in the fourth quarter, and the outcome was still in question. Uh, the Bengals were backed up to their own goal line. Andy Dalton dropped back to throw a pass, and as he did, J.J. Watt jumped up, tipped it to himself, intercepted it, and ran it back for a touchdown, and the place exploded. I'll never forget the roar of the building. 80,000 people jumping and screaming. My bones were literally shaking. The building was so loud. And we hugged and we high-fived strangers and we reveled in the victory that was ours. This is just a small micro-fraction of a foretaste of the celebration on that day because on that day, when Jesus returns, it will mean the end of all of our sorrows. It will mean no more persecution, no more rejection, no more temptation, no more deception, no more suffering, no more death. We will finally be home and we will jump up and down and we will sing in our new resurrected bodies that will never wear out or decay. And we will do so in the presence of the Lord, that very same presence that we were cast out of due to our sin. But we will be cast out no more. By the blood of Christ, we've been brought near. And right now, we see as in a mirror dimly. But then, we will see Him face to face. This is why we can endure, even in the face of assaults, by the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And not just endure like begrudgingly endure, like, well, I'm just going to trudge along and hopefully one day I'll make it to heaven. No, no. We're called to joyful endurance. This rejoicing is not intended to be put on hold until we reach heaven. Scripture calls us to rejoice always, to give thanks in all circumstances, because our future is certain. One of the ways we express this joy is through song. Ephesians 5, 19 and 20 instructs uh, the church like this. It says, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. My desire is that we would be a church filled with joyful Christians. But we can't be that unless we're placing our hope in heaven. One place this ought to show up is in our worship gatherings, when we gather to worship. We ought to be a joyful people who are excited to come and to worship our God. What does it communicate if we come to worship stone-faced and bored, mumbling the lyrics to the songs that we're singing, just kind of like, praise the Lord, you know, like, What does that communicate about us and about our hearts? We're not the frozen chosen, guys. We're not a group of people here to pay our religious dues in hopes that we're going to do enough to earn our way to heaven. No, we're already saved. Our future is already certain. We're a body of redeemed saints who've been reconciled to God. We have eternal life. Jesus is king. He's already victorious. We don't have any reason to be somber or solemn. We can rejoice with an expectant, hopeful joy. So let me encourage you to come to worship expectantly and sing loudly. Like 
let's lift up our voices such that when, when non-believers come and attend our worship gatherings, they see us and they go, what does she have? What, what kind of hope does he have? Where is this joy coming from? I mean, look at the chaos around us in the world. Look at what he or she's going through in their life, and yet they're so excited. They're so confident. They're so joyful about the future. Let's give people reason to believe that we have a hope for the future. The call to joyfully endure doesn't just apply to worship gatherings, but to all of life. We just read in Ephesians 5.20, which says, giving thanks always and for everything. Well, that's challenging. Always and for everything. Let me ask you, does your life exhibit a pattern of joy and thanksgiving or of grumbling and complaining? Oh, I'm coming. Does your life exhibit a pattern of joy and thanksgiving or of grumbling and complaining? If you find yourself grumbling and complaining frequently, it's because you're taking your eyes off of heaven. That's the bottom line. And it really is a simple solution. If you're grumbling and complaining a lot and you want to stop, then fix your eyes back on heaven. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit that is produced in any circumstance. As you fix your eyes on the glory that is to come, grumbling goes out. Joy comes in. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm chapter 4, verse 7. It, the psalmist declares to God, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. That's because grain and wine will pass away, but God will not. The world complains when their grain and their wine aren't abounding because that's where their hope is. Oh no, my grain and wine aren't abounding. Woe is me. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Because that's what they're placing their hope in. That's not where our hope is. We don't have to grumble and complain when our grain and wine aren't abounding. Because Jesus is infinitely better than all the grain and wine in the world. And Jesus is the one that gives us all the grain and wine that we need. So we can rejoice in any circumstance. And we ought to sing like it. So let's allow... The coming righteous judgment of God, which was, is going to result in our ultimate deliverance, cause rejoicing in us now and throughout eternity. Our, vic- our future victory is certain, church. Now, sadly, Revelation makes it plain that many people will not repent. Many people are not excited about the return of Jesus. Those who worship the beast and who bear the mark of the beast and worship its image will not rejoice at God's judgment, but they will rage against God's judgment. Look at verse 2 of chapter 16. As the bowls of wrath begin to unfold, it says, So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. God's judgment in the seven bowls are reserved specifically for unbelievers for the wicked they worship the beast they worship the image of the beast and they align themselves with the beast in opposition against god and they will suffer harmful and painful sores is what we're told in verse two and there's a clear and sobering lesson here and that's that everyone who opposes god will eventually suffer as a result everyone who opposes god will eventually suffer as a result And as we're going to see in the subsequent bowls, the very creation that they put their hope in becomes the source of their agony. 
Look at verses 4 to 7. Let's keep reading. It says, The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, just and true are your judgments. So as the, as the second and the third angels pour out their bowls, we read that every living thing in the sea died as all the waters are turned to blood. Those who have shed the blood of the saints are given blood to drink as just repayment for their evil. And the angel declares that God is holy and just to bring about this judgment. He declares it is what they deserve. God will repay those who have oppressed and harmed his people with justice and righteousness. Remember the saints at the altar in, in chapter 6, verses 10 to 11. Remember the, 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 the question they call out to God. They say, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? This is the answer to that prayer. This is the answer to that cry. And in chapter 16, verse 7, those, that, the same saints at that same altar declare, true and just are your judgments in response to God's answer to their prayer. Now this brings up a question. Why is it right that on the last day the saints will rejoice at the judgment of the wicked? Why is that right? Because that's the plain reading of the text. We can't get around that. That's what God's word says. So why is it right that on the last day the saints will rejoice at the judgment of the wicked? How do we make sense of the celebration happening in chapter 15, verses 1 to 4? After all, the destruction of the beast also implies the destruction of everyone who's aligned with the beast. The recipients of these plague judgments are people who bear the mark of the beast and worship the beast. Some may even be tempted to question the justice of this. Perhaps you feel uncomfortable with the idea of God inflicting wrath upon the wicked. Scripture teaches that God will be perfectly just in His judgment poured out upon the wicked. Not an ounce more or less of deserved wrath will be poured out. Every person will get exactly what they deserve because God, by His very nature, is a righteous judge. For God not to judge in perfect righteousness would be for Him not to be God. The theologian J.I. Packer says that God's wrath is His right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. The reason that your instant reaction when you hear a terrible story like a man kidnapping and sexually assaulting a young girl, the reason that you react to that in anger is because you're made in the image of God. It's, you have a desire for that man to receive the punishment that he deserves for that wicked act because you're made in God's image, because you have a sense of justice within you. Yes, we're, we're corrupted in our sinful nature, but there still is the image of God within us. And that's why we recoil at injustice like that. It's why we recoil at wickedness and evil like that. Our trouble is that we have a tendency to downplay both God's holiness in our own sinfulness. It's easy to understand God's wrath towards a rapist. It's much harder 
to admit that we ourselves deserve God's wrath or that our family members that aren't saved deserve God's wrath, isn't it? But this is the testimony of God's word. God is holy, meaning he is completely unlike us. He's in another category. God's wrath is not like our wrath. God does not fly off the handle like a drunk out of control and in a rage. God's wrath is measured, poured out exactly in proportion to our sin. Exactly what sinners deserve. And idolatry against the God who made us to worship Him deserves an infinite punishment. So on Judgment Day, the saints won't grimace and say, Oh God, okay, aren't you taking this a little too far? This doesn't seem fair. No. We will exclaim with the saints in chapter 16, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. We will approve of the righteousness of God in judging the wicked. Now, does this mean that we desire that the wicked would perish? Does this mean that we take some sort of sick pleasure in watching people suffer? No. We're called to love our enemies. And it's our desire that they would come to repentance and be saved. After all, let's not forget, we too were once God's enemies, deserving of God's wrath. But we were ransomed by the blood of Jesus. By God's grace, we've been forgiven. So we have no room to boast. Our only boast is in Jesus Christ. We freely received God's gift of grace, and so we're called to freely offer it to anyone who will listen. God, God is sovereign over salvation. God has His elect. He knows those who are His, but we don't. We don't know who the elect are. We're just called to go out and broadly sow the seed of the gospel and invite anyone and everyone who will listen to turn from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ. It's God who saves, not us. So we're called to hope and pray and labor for the salvation of all people by proclaiming the gospel. But we will agree with God's condemnation of the wicked on the last day. I think about, to help make sense of this a little bit more, one more illustration. Think about a scenario where a Christian man's wife is murdered. There's a sense in which he will be satisfied in the guilty verdict and the sentencing of the murderer. It is good and right. It's, it's what the murderer deserves. Justice needs to be carried out. What kind of corrupt judge would just let a murderer walk, right? And yet, because this Christian man has received God's grace, with God's help, he's able to forgive the murderer and even pray for him and even hope for his salvation. Not because he doesn't care about justice, but because he knows that if the murderer trusts in Jesus, then justice was carried out at the cross. The cross is where justice and the, where God's justice and God's love meet. It's the only way that both can be true, that God can be perfectly just, and yet God can love sinners. The only way that those things can coexist is the cross of Christ. You remove the cross of Christ and you've either, either got an unrighteous God who's just lovey-dovey and lets wickedness go the other way and doesn't care about it or you've got a just, wrathful God who can't forgive anyone and we're all condemned forever because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
the cross is the answer to this divine dilemma. At the cross, God's wrath was poured out on Jesus instead of on us. God's wrath was satisfied. So God can be just and the justifier of the ungodly, as Romans 3 says. So yes, we can and should rejoice in the fact that justice will be served and yet simultaneously desire that the wicked would repent and believe the gospel. As God's judgments intensify, you would think that those who worship the beast would come to their senses and be humbled under God's mighty hand. But that's not what happens. Look at verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had the power over these plagues. They did not repent and give Him glory. So the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. So, so the beast, it, it, the, the very rule and reign of the beast is being judged, and he's being plunged into darkness, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness, and people gnawed their tongues in anguish. You would think, finally, now, they'll wake up and come to their senses. But no, verse 11 says, and they cursed the God of heaven, for their pain and sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. God's judgments are intended to produce humility and repentance in the wicked. But for those who worship the beast, they only produce bitterness and anger. Rather than recognizing God's power and admitting their foolish rebellion, they stubbornly blaspheme God and call His judgment of them unfair. They fulfill... Proverbs chapter 19, verse 3, which says, When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. The idea that God would judge them actually makes them angry. You don't have to look very far to find this sentiment today, do you? Nothing will draw the ire of people more than this idea of the wrath of God. I've heard many people say, I would never worship a God who's wrathful. I'd never worship a God who would judge people. Some argue that the love of God is incompatible with the wrath of God. And others try to paint a picture of the God of the Old Testament being different from the God of the New Testament. But Revelation 15, 16 makes clear that God's wrath is consistent in the Old Testament and the New Testament. God does not change. And far from being incompatible, God actually demonstrates His love and justice in His wrath against sin. Just just think about it. Sin destroys everything it touches, and it leads to death. Sin is terrible. Sin is awful. Sin is the reason that we have all of this brokenness in the world around us. All of it started at the garden. All the groaning, all the pain, all the loss, all the death is a direct result of sin. Sin destroys everything that it touches. For God to ignore it would be both unjust and unloving because sin leads to destruction. God will not suffer to to allow sin to exist in heaven or sinners to exist in heaven. He can't. He's holy. He's righteous, and because He loves us, He will destroy sin, and He will destroy evil, because God is good. He's not going to coexist with evil. And the ultimate display of God's love 
was in his pouring out his wrath upon his one and only son, Jesus, so that he could give righteousness to guilty sinners. But despite this demonstration of his goodness and love and justice, the sad reality is that many will still choose to rebel against God to the very end. And as his righteous judgment is poured out on them, they will rage. So what does this tell us? It's two things. One, it tells us that there will be no innocent people who experience God's wrath. There will be no innocent people who experience God's wrath. Those who refuse to submit to God now will not want to submit to Him then. They won't. They will be steadfast in their rebellion and pride, and they will receive the wages of their sin. The second thing this tells us is that it takes a miracle to be saved. This is a reminder that it takes a miracle to be saved. Apart from God's grace, all of us would remain hardened in our sin. Like those who worship the beast in chapter 16, to the very bitter end, we would shake our fist at God and tell him, you're not just, you're not allowed to judge me. I hate you. That's what's happening here. There's this this seething anger at God. And it takes a miracle to change that in our heart. The Bible tells us that the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It can't. So we must be born again. Listen to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18 to 24. Paul's starting in verse 18. He's talking about unbelievers here. He says, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But then, listen, church, believer, he says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So once we were hard-hearted and darkened in our understanding, we followed the prince of the power of the air. 2 Timothy 2.26 says that the devil has taken unbelievers captive to do his will. But in Christ, we have been created anew after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We've been born again. We've been transformed from the inside out. We're no longer enslaved to sin or blind. We have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within us. This is the result of God's miraculous work of regeneration in our hearts. God opened our eyes to see our own sinfulness and Jesus' provision of salvation. Has God done this in you yet? Or when you hear about the idea that God is going to pour His wrath out upon you for your sin on the day that you stand before Him, does that make you angry? Does that harden you? Can I just plead with you to humble yourself this morning? The way that God opens our eyes is as the gospel is proclaimed, the miracle of of salvation happens. The Holy Spirit regenerates us and makes us a new creation as the gospel is proclaimed. So just one more time because 
I know that there's, in a room this size, there's people sitting here in here who are not born again. And so I just want to share the gospel with you and pray that as I do, that the Holy Spirit gives you spiritual sight. As I share the gospel, because that's how it happens. The gospel is that you have sinned against God Almighty. You deserve His wrath. His wrath is coming and it will be poured out upon sinners forever. But God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus was born a man, fully God and fully man, and He took on flesh so that He could come and die on the cross for your sin and my sin. Jesus bore our sin in His body on the tree, on the cross. And then three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, proving that he is exactly who he said he is. He's the son of God. He's defeated death. He's ascended into heaven. He's reigning as the king of kings, and he's coming back again to judge the living and the dead. And he invites all people everywhere to repent of their sin and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and eternal life. And you are invited to do that right now today. You are invited to be adopted into God's family, to receive his forgiveness, and you will be saved from the wrath of God that is to come. You don't have to experience that wrath. You're invited to receive salvation this morning. And there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1 tells us. But for those whose hearts remain hardened, the only expectation is coming judgment. Friends, people can rage against the wrath of God all that they want. They can call it unfair. They can accuse God of wrongdoing. But those accusations won't stand because God is perfectly righteous and He only does what is right. Charles Spurgeon said this, he said, Since none can fly from God, let them fly to Him. As no one can resist the power of His justice, let him flee to the power of His mercy. Or as one of my other favorite quotes goes, There is no rescue from Him, only rescue in Him. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as we get ready to close out our time. As I do, let me just remind you again, church, that God's righteous judgment upon the wicked will cause His people to rejoice and His enemies to rage. And we need to live in light of this coming judgment. That means broad seed sowing, sharing the gospel with everyone who will listen. It means loving our enemies because we know that God will vindicate us on Judgment Day and we don't have to take vengeance for ourselves. It means joyful endurance in anticipation of the Lamb's full and final defeat of the beast. We're about to have an opportunity to apply this passage right now. We're going to sing Amazing Grace, praising God for the gospel and for His glorious grace. As you sing this song, just consider what wrath you deserved. Consider how in bondage you were to sin and Satan. Consider the blood of Jesus that has set you free and let that rise up with joy in your hearts and sing loudly as we praise God for the gospel, as we praise Him for this amazing grace. Let's pour out our praise to God and let's blow the roof off of this place this morning. That's the least we can do. For all that God has done for us. Let me pray and then we'll worship. God, we thank you. We praise you as the holy, righteous judge of all the earth. You are good and you are just in all of your ways.
And we praise you as the one who died for us and rose from the dead so that we could be saved from our sin. Thank you for demonstrating your love for us on the cross. God, we love you and we worship you. I pray that you would help us to live in light of your imminent return. Help us not to fix our eyes on things that are going to pass away, but help us to put our hope in heaven. May that change the way that we live. God, we love you and we pray now that you'd be magnified and glorified and enthroned upon the praises of your people as we sing loudly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.